Hi everyone, Dan Cassidy here. Welcome back to Top of the Morning on the UBS Market Moves podcast channel. Joining me once again to begin another week is CIO's Head of Asset Allocation for the Americas, Jason Dreho. Jason, joining us for our weekly CIO Strategy Snapshot Conversation. So with that, Jason, welcome back. Hope you enjoyed a nice weekend. It's starting to feel more like spring, summer up here in the Northeast, which is great, but welcome back. And of course, as always, there's a lot to catch up on. Morning, Dan. Happy Monday. Yeah, it finally feels like uh, summer is now here sustainably going up in the Northeast. Absolutely. Always a good feeling. So with that, Jason, maybe we can begin by thinking back to last week. So it was a week ago when you and I last spoke. At that point, there was a lot of anticipation over the upcoming Fed meeting, the rate decision, which we did receive on Wednesday. That delivered us a hike of a quarter of a point. So, of course, now the big question is, has the Fed paused going forward? And what can we expect in the way of remarks, sentiment from the Fed, as well as any action in the months ahead? So, what are your thoughts around that? Well, the Fed didn't come out explicitly either in the FOMC statement or Chair Powell at his press conference and say they're pausing hikes. But you know, the strong indication is that you know policy is on hold unless we see growth, inflation, or credit conditions end up being kind of far stronger than you know we or the Fed are expecting over the next few months. So possibility, but I think the bar is pretty high for the Fed to raise rates again in June or, or thereafter, given the likely trajectory of the economy. So that's kind of went according to plans so in terms of, you know, hiking 25 basis points, indicating, you know, a pause is likely, but not being so explicit and, uh, you know, kind of giving themselves kind of optionality to potentially do another hike if necessary. So the focus really was on, you know, the, the guidance that they would give about going forward, what are the criteria they would need to maybe, you know, you know, either raise rates or cut rates, but also how they want to kind of, you know, navigate it. You know, the Fed has been pretty clear that, you know, they expect to get to this level and then hopefully keep the rates you know, elevated for an extended period of time, not cut as the market is set of pricing in, in order to be sure that inflation is fully kind of squashed or suppressed uh, before they start cutting rates. You know, to avoid the risk that they cut rates, then inflation accelerates and they have to kind of you know reverse course you know pretty quickly. So that's the the goal. I mean, the market right now is still pricing about 80 basis points for rate cuts by year end, and the Fed is essentially saying. Uh, you know, we're not cutting it at all this year. So there's some disconnect, and one of those two has to move towards the other. Uh, it's going to be a challenge in the upcoming meetings for the Fed to remain uh, kind of committed to this plan because all they can do is say, we intend to keep rates high. They can't actually, you know, lock in and keep the, the policy rate above, you know, 5%. Uh, it's also a challenge to do this in an environment where there's, you know, ongoing bank stress, and we saw last week where it looked like, you know, some of the banking problems were now kind of fully kind of curtailed after J.P. Morgan bought First Republic. And then what we saw last week is, you know, regional bank stocks, again, came under significant, you know, pressure. Uh, and, you know, Chair Powell really didn't do himself any favors by saying, kind of almost at the start of the press conference, that we think the banking situation is, is kind of stabilized. The stress from March is kind of moderated. And then a few hours after the press conference, there's media reports saying that one of the banks that has been you know, under stress last week, PacWest, uh, was now, you know, pursuing strategic alternatives, which it denied. But, again, it suggests that this problem you know, hasn't been resolved uh, and it's going to be difficult for the Fed to simultaneously fight inflation and curtail bank stress, even though it claims to have separate and distinct tools to deal with both Both those. I mean, the market doesn't quite believe it. So it's a, it's a challenging communication tightrope for the Fed to walk, you know, given what's going on with the banking sector, in addition to the, you know, the, the question about, you know, when does the, policy tending as far impact the economy and really kind of bring down inflation. So while the Fed might be on pause, it's certainly not 
you know, irrelevant to the markets and certainly what it says and does going forward on the banking front, you know, is going to have significant implications for the, you know, the market dynamics going forward. So in terms of what this all means for the investment outlook from here, Jason, you actually touch on this in your recent blog title is level set within the blog. You do assess the investment outlook in light of a potential fed pause accounting for as well, roughly 80% of the Q1 corporate reporting season having been completed at this point, as well as the first batch of economic data being being out for the month of April. So what does this all mean for your overarching framework, Jason? Well, the framework that I've had for the, the markets is usually predicated on sort of the economy evolving as a kind of slow burn over multiple quarters rather than experience imminent and rapid declines in growth and inflation. So it's going to, it's going to moderate slowly, cool off slowly. It's not going to suddenly you know, fall off a cliff. Now, having said that, you know, the outlook in some way really hinges on what I characterize as a race to the bottom between growth and inflation. You know, how quickly does either one fall and fall to levels that, in the case of inflation, gets back to 2% or for growth, does it fall into a recession or stabilize, uh, you know, kind of above and in positive you know, territory? And this matters because the odds of a soft landing rise if inflation is falling faster than growth, uh, because it means that the Fed can ultimately dial back, you know, um, you know, it's, you know Fed rates sooner because Inflation is down, not because growth is down. And it's vice versa. If growth is falling faster than inflation, that's kind of the worst possible outcome because then you have sticky, elevated inflation and growth slowing. You have this sort of stagflation combination, and that increases your hard landing probability. So while both are likely to evolve slowly, the one that evolves and kind of declines more rapidly, that's sort of, you know, going to probably be the, the bigger driver of the market determinant. You know, and so as a result, investors are really focused on what's going to break first. Is it going to be the labor market? Uh, which has been holding up reasonably well as a core inflation. This Fed has paused. Is the Fed going to pause towards a pivot? Um, and now, you know, the banking stress, is this going to break, you know, something more significantly where we've had a number of regional banks come under stress and go under? Can this break into something you know, bigger? So I think that's the overarching framework. There's a lot of ways in which the macro all look to materialize, which is why I think there's still kind of what I call fat tails, either both upside and downside scenarios are still quite plausible. And given that the market is now very data dependent with the Fed being on pause, it's likely to have kind of jump around from one narrative to another, meaning it might sort of price an increasing probability of a soft landing, then some data will come in or some event will happen that it's kind of shifts in towards pricing in a hard landing or perhaps a stagflation, something along those lines. So it's really kind of toggling back and forth, lacking clear direction, and in some way ultimately kind of keeping the equity markets somewhat range-bound and yields, treasury yields also range-bound. So, Jason, I I do want to run a bit further with something you mentioned a few moments ago. So you do indicate that the economy is likely to experience a slow burn decline in growth and inflation rather than imminent and rapid declines. Yet the outlook also hinges on a race to the bottom for both variables. So can you expand on that for us a bit, Jason, and speak to the status of this race? Inflation falls more quickly than growth. That's good. Uh, we get the inflation problem under control before maybe we start a recession, and therefore the Fed can dial back. It's the opposite if growth falls more quickly than inflation, uh, because then you have a situation where the Fed still has to fight inflation, yet growth is slow, and it can't you know kind of deal with both easily at once, and then you run the risk of you know uh, you know the most unpleasant environment. That was really kind of what the market environment was in 2022. Now, if you actually look at what's going on, you know, with the data recently, sort of assess how are these things trending. Um, you know, we're seeing sort of moderation in both, but in some ways, it's, you know, maybe there's a slightly better picture on the growth holding up rather than inflation. 
let's look at you know, an example of you know, the data on the labor market. On Friday, we got the April payrolls report. Uh, the number came in for 252,000 new jobs in April. Uh, the prior two months, February and March, were revised downwards. But if we look at over the last six months, from November through April, you know, job growth on a monthly basis, they've gone from like 290, 239, 472 in January, it was a popped up, back to 248, 165, and 253. So yes, it's declining, but very kind of gradually. And if you look at other labor market data points, it's sort of telling the same thing. Job openings are coming down, but not dramatically, you know, on a month-over-month basis. Um, you know, hiring you know, still is, is kind of, you know, pretty robust. Initial jobless claims our unemployment claims are ticking up, but very slowly. So kind of a real gradualism to it. But if you look at other parts of the economy, it's sort of a similar story. The housing market slowed rapidly last year, but over the past three or four months, you're seeing at least a bottoming out or leveling off of you know, housing starts and new home sales. In fact, the data is sort of ticking a little bit higher. And even something like the ISM Manufacturing Index, which fell below 50 in November, uh, for the past you know four months, you know uh, January through April this year, it's ranged between 46 and 48. It actually ticked up a little bit uh, last month. So it's not getting any worse. It's in contraction territory, but it's almost kind of holding steady. So this kind of speaks to the fact that it's going to be probably a slow moderation this year. Um, but we, growth is likely to slow because of the lagged effects of high rates and credit tightening will weigh on growth. I think sort of big drop seems unlikely in the very near term. So that's you know relatively good news. On the inflation side, you know we're seeing some measures decline rapidly. You know, headline CPI is, is falling from, you know, very percent for, for, um, March it was 5%. It may not change for April, but by June data that we get out in early July, it could be down to less than three and a half percent due to kind of year over year effects. Then you look at things like import prices, producer price index, those have also fallen very rapidly, but others are falling very gradually, such as like wage growth. It's only moderated a little bit and core CPI, it's a little bit lower, but it's still quite elevated. And it's really those core measures that are, are kind of the, what matter most for the markets and what the Fed cares most about. I mean, there is some positive news on that front. The shelter leading indicators suggest that shelter inflation will continue to decline, you know, especially by year end. And even wage growth that is elevated right now, it actually tends to lag uh, CPI inflation or price inflation. So the thought that it could be a wage price spiral, you know, I think those concerns are sort of assumed that wages drive prices higher. The historical data actually saying suggests the causality runs kind of the opposite direction to the extent that it runs you know, either way. That you know price inflation leads to wage inflation, and then so if price inflation like CPI comes down, that would suggest that in the coming months and quarters that wage inflation should moderate. So I think depends on how you look at it. You know there could be positive or negative stories on inflation. The challenge though is that you know inflation dynamics are not well understood. They're hard to predict, and if growth stays resilient, that should also temper inflation coming down. So it's also a good reason why the inflation story is sort of a slow burn, uh, you know. But but I think between the two, there's maybe a little more reason to be optimistic that inflation is going to go in the right direction than growth at this point in time. Okay, so a bit of a mixed economic assessment, though, as you pointed out, Jason, you can extract some positive takeaways from it. And I know we'll be receiving April inflation prints this week. That'll be interesting to see. So with that economic assessment in mind, considering as well the ongoing banking stress, you mentioned ongoing development specific to some of the U.S. regional banks. How, Jason, do you assess market performance? Well, before I get to that, I would just add one thing to, to my prior comments, that this all assumes, or sort of abstract to some extent, the, the banking stress situation. This is sort of a hard-to-quantify downside risk, because 
in someone when you're dealing with banking crisis, you're dealing primarily with a crisis of confidence. And confidence can be okay until one day you wake up and it's not okay. Uh, and then in that case, credit conditions that are slowly tightened, you can tighten very quickly, and this can bring down growth and inflation kind of very rapidly. So while, you know, there's reasons where growth is holding up very quickly, I think the downside risk because of the banking stress is more acute for growth than it is inflation. If growth falls rapidly because suddenly credit conditions really dry up as a real credit crunch, growth will be impacted first before inflation. Inflation will then kind of follow. So the downside risks are sort of important in this consideration. Even if you know, growth is sort of slowly coming down, it could suddenly fall off a cliff much faster in some way than inflation, uh, you know, because it's going to be impacted more by the, the market or the credit dynamics. Now, when you think of that, then you put in the context of sort of market pricing, the markets in some sense have a vote on whether my kind of thesis and overarching framework is, you know, is valid. And for that, I'd say the, the markets are collectively leaning towards inflation as being the kind of current leader in, in the markets uh, in the race to the bottom. But it really depends on what asset class you look at. If you start with the treasury market and yields at rates, they're pricing in recession starting in, you know, probably by the third quarter. The Fed has to kind of get 80 basis points by, by year end. Uh, and then it's also pricing for inflation to come down, but it really sort of kind of the growth is recession is kind of driving the rate story. On the other hand, equities are more sanguine on growth, uh, and they're also expecting inflation to climb. So in some way, they're really kind of pricing in pretty high probability of a soft landing. You know, if, if you don't think that's pricing in that, you know, it's tough to explain how or why the S&P 500 is up 7% since the banking crisis began, and we've seen you know, volatility, realized volatility, implied volatility for equities also kind of, you know, come down. And if you look across kind of all asset classes, you know, the performance this year is really kind of consistent with the you know, disinflation. We've seen commodity prices come down. They're one of the few asset classes that are actually lower year to date. Uh, and so that's the decline in yields that we've seen has also benefited sort of longer duration assets. So that's one of the reasons why mega cap tech stocks have done well, but also, you know, gold, Bitcoin, you know, I think as an asset class have, has done relatively well or more economically sensitive asset classes like small cap stocks, energy financials have lagged the most. So it's been sort of a disinflation declining rates narrative across the markets, more so than it's been kind of growth concerns, if you think across the board. Uh, and it's also, well, I think there are fat tails of upside and downside risks. The S&P 500 and the 10-year Treasury yield have traded in relatively narrow ranges. Uh, in some way, they're kind of waiting for something to break, you know, before they kind of really break out of that. So it's interesting sort of dynamic uh, it's really been sort of more of kind of disinflation been sort of the dominant story this year as opposed to thus far the market's really, really concerned about on a broad-based basis about slowing growth. Maybe we can spend a few moments as we close out on asset allocation. So given what we've covered, Jason, what makes sense in this environment as far as positioning? What is CIO recommending at this time? Well, the Fed may have paused and the banking crisis continues, but I think the overall outlook that we have you know, hasn't really changed. Um, you know, some it's still a function of how growth and inflation are likely to evolve over the next few quarters, but also what's priced into the markets. And I just alluded to, you know, the rates market pricing in definitely more probability of a recession. Uh, equity markets pricing in comparatively low probability of recession. Given also the risks and the uncertainties about the banking crisis and how that could, you know, really escalate downwardly for the markets, you know, either very quickly it's the risk reward skew for equities versus high quality bonds remains unfavorable. So I think, you know, none of this has kind of really changed, you know, on an overall basis. The, you know, the outlook also then for, you know, the near term is probably markets continue to be kind of range bound until we see something can clearly kind of break them out of the ranges they've been in for a while. And that could entail inflation surprisingly on the downside, growth, 
the labor market suddenly cooling very rapidly over the course of the summer, or the banking crisis you know, escalating in the way that it looks like credit is tightening very rapidly, and that's going to weigh on on growth. So some of those factors could play out, but until they do, I think it's more kind of kind of range bound the markets going forward with a relative unattractive risk reward for equities overall. You know, but it depends on where you look. I mean, we still see kind of better opportunities um, outside of the U.S. where some of these challenges certainly aren't quite as acute. Like the banking situation is a U.S. kind of specific problem, so we see some some more upside there. Uh, but overall, we still kind of tilt towards kind of higher quality, you know, more defensive assets, whether it's in equities or fixed income at this point in time. And still also believe though that something like commodities are pricing in probably too much probability of recession, even though the fundamentals dictate those prices should go higher. So they're not a bad hedge. This scenario where actually growth slows, but inflation doesn't because inflation isn't slowing in that case. It's probably because commodity prices are holding up relatively well, similar to sort of the, the relative performance, you know, in 2022, where they were the one asset class that did comparatively well. So in both the base case, but also certainly in a risk off cases, ironically, commodities could do relatively well in that situation, given what they're already priced. Well, without question at the moment, a lot of moving parts when it comes to macro monetary policy considerations, the impact that all has to the investment outlook from CIO. So, Jason, thank you for joining us to level set the investment outlook, how CIO is viewing the market, the macro environment, and of course, the guidance when it comes to positioning in this environment as well. So, Jason, thank you for dropping by and looking forward to picking back up with our strategy conversation in the week ahead. You're welcome and have a great week. Likewise. Thank you, Jason. And again, today we have been joined by Head of Asset Allocation for the Americas with the UBS Chief Investment Office, Jason Dreho. I will again point out the blog, which we have been referring to, authored by Jason Dreho. That title is Level Set, is available up on UBS.com slash CIO. For clients listening in of UBS, please be sure to reach out to your UBS financial advisor if you would like to receive a copy of Jason's blog directly from UBS Studios. I'm Dan Cassidy. Thank you for joining us. UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the Global Wealth Management Business of UBS AG or its affiliate, UBS. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient and is published for informational purposes only. As a firm providing wealth management services to clients globally, UBS AG and its subsidiaries offer both investment advisory services and brokerage services. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. In the USA, UBS Financial Services, Inc. is a subsidiary of UBS AG and a member of FINRA SIPC. For information, please visit our website at UBS.com forward slash working with us. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at UBS.com forward slash CIO disclaimer.